Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Ugh, I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny King. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed. So I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of Needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre- and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today's story is with Parajat Deshpande. Parajat's first pregnancy was extremely complicated and risky, with her micropremie son being born at 24 weeks. So when it came to doing it again, the seemingly easier option was to use a surrogate. Or so they thought. Listen as Parajat takes us on an unbelievable roller coaster of emotions that ends up with her taking home a healthy, full-term baby girl. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, 
talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. Thank you, as always, for all the love you give the show, for sharing the episodes you enjoy with your friends, with your family, and social media feeds. I really, truly appreciate it. If what you hear is helpful, then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'm also so grateful to Parajat for wanting to share her story on the show, and I am happy that she is at a place where she feels comfortable doing this. National Infertility Awareness Week was two weeks ago, so even though my timing is off, it is of course still important to raise awareness and share these stories that don't really get talked about much. The truth is that anyone can be challenged to have a family and these difficult experiences are a reality for so many people. Please note that this story mentions miscarriages and difficulties with IVF, so be mindful and consider if you are in a place to hear this. All right, here we go. Welcome, Parijat. It is so great to have you here again. Ah, thank you so much. It's so exciting to be here again. Yeah, and a completely different hat you're wearing today because you're going to tell a story. I am going to tell a story. It's quite a story. I am so honored to have you here sharing your story because I know that it's so unique and obviously filled with your own insights from both being a, you know, high risk maternal specialist and, and more than that, a birth junkie, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are those things. Um, But I know these things. How about you share with the listeners who don't know you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a high-risk pregnancy expert, a mind-body health specialist for women going through high-risk pregnancies to help them manage their stress response, the physiological stress response to help them manage their complications during pregnancy to help them stay pregnant as long as possible. Uh, I came into that work having experienced a very high-risk pregnancy myself and realizing that the medical interventions that I needed to stay pregnant were extremely critical, but they were not the whole story. And that actually there's a lot of research and science on the impact of our physiological stress response on many, many different types of pregnancy complications. And so after my son came home from a very lengthy NICU stay, I, do- I dove into the research and the literature and realized that if if I could do this and help myself stay pregnant for even a few days, which was the difference between life and death for him at that point, um, then I can teach others to do the same thing because I don't think we have enough empowering messages around that. And I feel like every woman needs to know the power of her body, even when you're going through one of the scariest times of your life. So from there, um, I, I began my business, started working with clients, and then last year published uh, my book, Pregnancy Brain, which goes through the, the details of the impact of the stress response on pregnancy health and pregnancy outcomes. And uh, that's what brought us here today, I guess. Yeah. And also, I want to tell everyone to get, go and get that book, even if you're not, if you're pregnant or planning to be pregnant, and it doesn't matter if you have a high-risk pregnancy or just a non-high-risk pregnancy, it's a fabulous read. Um, And I will link on the show notes to the other two episodes we've done together because you and I have like connected for years now, and I love (laughs) that we have this relationship. Um, But and and I think part of why we connect so well is because we both really place an emphasis on that mind-body connection absolutely that gives the per- the pregnant person control because we think you know there's so much uncertainty around birth and it's all out of our control and rather it's the, the circumstances might be but there is so much that you can control through yes. your mind and body Mm. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, that's exactly why we're such good friends is because of that exact thing that you just said. (laughs) Yeah. So into your story, we're going to talk about your, you, you your baby girl who is now hauled. She's five months, five months. Um, and that, so this is the main point of the story. It was a surrogate story, but I do want to talk, you know, take you back to even when you were considering getting pregnant, like what were, because you had had a previously high risk pregnancy that was 
so involved. I'll, I'll let you share some highlights of that. But what were your considerations at that point where you were thinking, okay, we want another child. How are we going to do this? Yeah, that it's, it's so involved, right? It's not an easy decision. Um, at the same time, so we started our fertility journey with fertility treatment because we knew that I was going to have trouble conceiving. And after our first cycle and where we experienced a loss, this was before Vihan, my son, was uh, born. I told my husband at that point when we were about to start IVF, you know what? I just feel like my body is not meant for this. Maybe we should look into surrogacy. I can still remember exactly where I was in the house when I said that to him. And I still remember the look on his face when I told that to him. And we came to the conclusion that, well, it's a really, really big leap. Let's keep that on the table, but let's try IVF first and see what happens. And then we found out what happens, which is I had a very high-risk pregnancy. It was very, we were very lucky that the first round of IVF worked for us. I did get pregnant right away. And then I ended up with eight complications and was on bed rest from week six at home, landed on bed rest at 22 weeks at three centimeters dilated. And uh, my water broke at 23 weeks and two days. And my son was born at 24 weeks and five days. And after that, then began the NICU journey. And we were there for 109 days in the NICU watching our son fight for his life. And for once he came home the day after his due date, then our life was consumed with taking care of him because it's not over once the baby comes home. There's, especially for a baby that's born that early, there's lots of cares, lots of therapies, lots of support that's needed post-discharge. And so our life just really revolved around helping him grow and thrive and become stronger for a couple of years. And, and the interesting thing is my husband and I always wanted three children. And so in the back of our heads, it was, okay, well, we'll deal with it at some point, but we have all these embryos in the freezer, so we should have this conversation at some point about what are we going to do? I think it was about a year and a half after he had come home when we started having some serious discussions about, okay, when do we want to, to even open this door again? Do we want to open this door again? What do we do with the leftover embryos if we decide not to have more children? So many difficult conversations and we decided the next step really was, let's talk to my doctors and get a good view of what the heck just happened. How did I end up with a pregnancy with eight complications and ended up delivering when I did? What was that? Is that an anomaly or is this likely to happen again? So we had some pretty detailed conversations with my reproductive endocrinologist and my OB and my two maternal fetal medicine specialists that were on my team. Between all of them, we found out that I do have a risk for delivering preterm again. Likely not as early as I did with Vihan, but like moderately preterm. They were thinking as likely when the baby would probably come with even with surgery and bed rest and possibly in and out of hospitalizations. They were putting the risk at about 50% delivery around 32 weeks. And we both looked at each other and we went, 32 is way better than 24, but it is not 40. And we are not interested. That sounds like a terrible, those like those sound like terrible odds to play. Right. 50% is not a small number. It's not a small number. And, and it would require so many interventions while having a toddler at home and a toddler who still needed a lot of medical care. Mm. And it just seemed really complicated, but it also felt really hard to to pull the trigger then. So we expanded our search and we spoke with uh, another reproductive endocrinologist who then presented my case at a case conference at their clinic. I saw two other maternal fetal medicine specialists and we got a total of, I believe, eight or nine opinions from different, from varying clinics around the country. And the overwhelming response was, we're not going to tell you not to get pregnant, but 
you know, it was very clear that, that the recommendation was if you can't, if you don't, if you're able to not get pregnant, don't get pregnant without saying it in those words. Mm. And after having, you know, having had that originally sort of like an intuition about it before you had your son, like when you were first going and starting your fertility journey, thinking, huh, maybe I shouldn't get pregnant. And then going this whole long journey and getting all these opinions and having this sort of confirmation of, "Hmm, yeah, maybe you should not get pregnant. What were you feeling? How did that make you feel? What showed up for you with that? Honestly, I felt relieved. Mm. I felt finally people were understanding what my concerns had been up until this point. I, you know, and we talked, we just, we just talked about this, how much control we have. And I think part of that control is really knowing a lot about our bodies in a way that nobody else understands. I had no history of pregnancy prior to that. I had no, we had not started fertility treatment. Like we had no real data, so to speak, of why I would feel this way. But there's something that we often know about our bodies that nobody else knows. And now it finally felt like, okay, now you get it. Now you all understand what I've been worrying about this whole time. And so I was tremendously relieved. Yeah. And and I'm sure that brought clarity because this was something that you knew, but like say your husband didn't, like it brought clarity for him as well. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And we actually, after we got all the reports back from all these different doctors, I remember sitting at the dining table one evening, just reviewing it all. And he, w- he looked at me, he went, you've been right. You've mm-hmm. been right the whole time. And now I get it. Ugh. And that was huge. I bet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> just, just hearing it. I'm like, oh, I want to give you a yeah. hug. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then what? Okay. You've gotten all these opinions and, and so what's your next step then? So the next step for us was to figure out when, and, and, you know, the, the surrogacy world is so complicated and it's really unregulated even more so than the adoption world. So we wanted to make sure we were aware of what we were getting ourselves into. And thankfully we had several friends who had gone through this process and they had friends who they had met along the way. And so we kind of started talking to the non-medical side, right? The, the actual parents of what was this journey like? What do you wish you had known? What do you wish somebody had told you? Um, what mistakes happened along the way? Or just to try to get a sense of what are we up against? Because now, yes, my son's care to bring him home was extremely expensive, but now we were adding so many more expenses because every part of this journey was going to be paid out of pocket. So we wanted to really be sure we understood what the ins and outs were. We spoke to parents. We spoke to several agencies that they had recommended, trying to get a sense of what their structure was like. How do you even get started? What's the process even technically about this? And then we sat down and went, when do we do this? Because this is going to become another full-time job. We already have. My husband was working. I wasn't working at the time but I was caring for our son full-time, which involved still a lot of medical cares, even two, three years after discharge. When do we do this? And then we were looking at our age. We were looking at the age gap and we're going, okay, at some point we're going to have to just jump in before we're ready because this process is going to take a long time to sign up with an agency, to find somebody. But we assumed that once that part was done, then she would get pregnant quickly because we knew our embryos were good. Um, And she was going to be much healthier than I am. So we figured, okay, at least if we get through the first part of it, then she'll get pregnant quickly. And then we'll have our chance to have three children because of the spacing and the age gap and all of that. And in terms of of that that next step, like you you went to when, but I think I was, and and, and I'm so glad I asked, right? Um, My thoughts were, did you go straight from, okay, I'm not going to get pregnant, so let's do surrogacy, or did you consider adoption, or did you not because you had the embryos, and that was also part of answering the question of what to do with these embryos? That's a really great question. We did talk about adoption, and there were two reasons why we decided not to. One was because we had the embryos. 
Um, and there were, we had nine of them. So we just felt like we had so many opportunities to have our biological children uh, because they were all right there. But more than that, it was literally the emotional piece of it that pushed us away from adoption, which is we have several friends who have adopted their children. We've heard the stories that adoption is not guaranteed. There's a lot of points in the process in which things could change where you no longer um, are in line to be the adoptive parents. Um, birth parents can change their minds at any point. And after everything that we had been through with our son of not knowing for 40 weeks, whether he was going to go home, come home with us or not, uh, whether he was going to leave us or not. And the angst and just how exhausting and overwhelming that process was, we were very honest with ourselves one day and we said, I don't think we could handle that. I think our hearts are too broken to be able to handle having the hope of having a ch another child and then have that be taken away. And that was the biggest reason why we decided not to pursue the adoption route. Mm -hmm. And I do, you know, I do want to acknowledge, and I think you acknowledge this as well, that because of the system is what it is, that all of this is out of pocket and expensive, that this is an option that is even, even available to many people. Absolutely. Yeah. So that I... I it, we're not going to like judge or one way or the other or comment. I just, no. I just want people to know that I'm we are acknowledging that this is a little bit of a privilege and that's, that's totally, you know, what it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. These are really hard decisions to make and there's no right answer either way. Oh, absolutely. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, um, I want to hear about, so that, so now you've decided and you decided how, like, what did that look like? We'll be right back. And we are back. So, um, so you decided the when and you've kind of figured out the how as well. <laughs> and you got sort of, what, I know you mentioned before we took a break that you felt that you guys were too broken to go down a path of adoption. What did you do, if anything, to try to shore yourselves up for this new process you were going to face? Because it, while it might not be as emotionally difficult as, as an adoption process, it, it, from what you learned, it's still not an easy process. Yeah. And I think honestly, we went into it quite ignorant and naive about that. I think we were thinking, well, the embryos are good quality. We're going to have somebody carry the baby who's going to be healthy. She's probably going to be about my age or younger. Uh, everything's working in our favor. So everything will be just fine. And it's going to be hard to have somebody else carry the baby, but that we can deal with. And at the end of it, we know for sure that this baby is going to come home with us because we're quite certain that it was uh, my body's challenges to carry to term and not really anything else. And that was really just a story that we had carried on with us. And we went into it expecting it to be a breeze. And we would actually start joking about, oh my gosh, we have nine embryos. Are we really going to have nine kids? Like we should figure out what we're going to do with all these embryos. We were that sure that it was just the the medical piece of this was going to be very simple and the complications were going to come from the logistics and then also the emotional piece of knowing somebody else was carrying the baby for no, those 40 weeks. And then what ha what actually happened? <laughs> the exact opposite. Oh. <laughs> it was the exact opposite. It was actually um, tremendously heartbreaking because once we settled on an agency, and, and actually just to speak to your point that you mentioned earlier, not everybody has to go through an agency, by the way, and, and if finances are an issue, we have friends of ours who um, were able to find a relative or a friend who would carry for you, for them, and it saves a lot of costs that way, uh, really, really dampens the cost quite a bit than going through an agency. And we actually had several friends offer um, and when it came down to it, we decided, I think, with an agency, it was going to be a little bit better option. We didn't want to blur the lines between our relationships with the friends and and then timeline also as they were wanting to grow their family and we weren't ready to wait and all of that. Mm -hmm. 
So once we signed on with the agency, we found um, they started matching us with potential candidates uh, based on the profile that we had created and the profile that the gestational carriers had provided. And they were trying to match us based on personality. And, you know, they're very good about wanting us to have a good relationship and not have it be like a business transaction, which is what we wanted as well. And we were matched with one gestational carrier and we actually did two cycles with her. The first cycle was a failed cycle. Um, it, she just didn't get pregnant. And I think we, we took that relatively okay. I mean, we had nine embryos. We still felt there was a ton of buffer. This happens. We got very lucky with my IVF cycle where I got pregnant right away. Like this happens. This is okay. We can handle it. It'll be fine. The next cycle, we jumped right back in and she had an early miscarriage. And so we were down to seven embryos and we thought, okay, everything will be fine. It'll be okay. Uh, and then she decided to move on for personal reasons. And so we had to wait another, I want to say almost seven, eight months to be rematched with somebody who ended up being our gestational carrier who carried our daughter. And we did one cycle with her. She also had an early miscarriage and we thought, wait a minute, what is going on here? So we had six embryos left and we finally sat down with my reproductive endocrinologist. We said, something's not right because these embryos are good quality. They weren't tested though, but uh, we had done our cycle when I was in my twenties. So we were assuming that because of my age and because I don't have any egg quality or ovarian issues that everything would be completely fine. So he recommended that we test them and we biopsy them before our next cycle, biopsy the final six and just see what we're dealing with, which we agreed to. So we thawed them and uh, it was like the most tense couple of days before our next cycle because we didn't know what to expect, how many of them were going to be good quality, how many of them were going to come back with chromosomal abnormalities, which means we weren't going to use them. We had, it was such a numbers game and I was like, the emotions were so high and she was really wanting this for us and we were really wanting this and we were, um, it was starting to become real that we're kind of going through these embryos pretty quickly. And I remember she was in town and we had gone to lunch. The transfer was the following day and our plan was to transfer once we got the biopsy results back, we were going to transfer the best quality one. We were always about single embryo transfers. So we're only going to transfer one, the best quality one that came back. We were walking down the street after lunch. We'd had a little cupcake just to kind of cheers to this is going to be it. This is going to be the cycle. We're walking down the street. My phone rang and it was the embryologist. And I picked up and I could just hear in his voice something wasn't right. And he told us uh, on the phone, they thawed six embryos to biopsy them, and three of them didn't survive the thaw. Oh, and my heart sank. I, I leaned on our gestational care because I couldn't stand up for a second. I had said, we went from six embryos to three in one day? what are you talking about? And he was trying to be really supportive and really kind about it. And he said, look, you've still got three. We were able to biopsy the three. Um, the numbers are still in your favor. I will let you know tomorrow when you come in for transfer, we'll have the results on the biopsies. Stay hopeful. It still could work out. And I was devastated. And that night, I don't think any of us slept because we were terrified what just happened? If we could lose three in one day, what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, and for you guys, um, even though they're embryos, you know, each one of them were potential children. Exactly. So it's like you lost three potential children's child children overnight. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm. exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Was this because of the thought or would it been any like, I don't know the process. So they, well, I would think obviously they would need to be thawed regardless for transfer, like yeah. where it was then or at some point there was always always a chance of those not 
surviving the thaw. I think that was the conclusion they came to is that those three would not have survived the thaw no matter what. Um, there's some thought that the way they were frozen, because we had changed clinics also in between, be, when we started the um, surrogacy process, we had to actually move clinics from where I was prior. And they thought that maybe the way they were frozen at the first clinic potentially could have affected the way their quality, but there's just, or they were just not good quality to begin with. And they would not have survived the thought no matter what we would have done. There's just no way to know. Mm. So what happened in the visit the next day? So the next day we go in for a transfer. This has now become so routine for us. <laughs> we were in the same bed, in the same bay, at the same place. Gestational carrier was back in bed, back in her gown. They'd given us our little Michelin man suits to wear to go into the OR. Like everything was exactly the way it was every time before then. So this was now number four, transfer number four we had done with a gestational carrier. And we were, of course, the last transfer that um, was scheduled that day. And nobody had called us. Nobody had said uh, given us any results. And we're all sitting there. You can feel the tension in the room. And we're trying to talk about all kinds of things to take our mind off of it. Um, talking about kids. We're talking about Disneyland. We're talking about the weather. We're talking about movies, like whatever we can uh, to keep our minds occupied. And we, and then at, at one point we were like, well, they wouldn't let us get this far if we had no embryos left. Right. And we were like driving ourselves crazy. And finally, about, I think it was like 20 minutes late, the embryologist walks in to the bay with the reproductive endocrinologist who was doing the procedure that day. And she said, you got the results, right? And all of us jumped on her went, no, what's happening? She was so surprised. And she said, we got the results back. And she sounded really upbeat. We got the results back of the three embryos you biopsied. And one came back chromosomally normal. And I cried. Oh. And our gestational carrier cried. And my husband fell down and sat in the, in the chair, just devastated. This right. was our last shot. Yeah. You went from nine to one. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. In the span of 24, 36 hours, we went from six to one. In the span of a little over a year, no, about a year, we went from nine to one. And this was it. No pressure. No. Mm. Right? No Ugh. pressure. I had to bite my tongue from sobbing in the OR during the transfer. I had no hope. I didn't think this was going to work. I, I could imagine I, since we started when, since we had decided to pursue surrogacy almost weekly, if not more, I would have a dream and I'd wake up in the morning having had a very vivid dream of having a baby girl for years, this would happen. And I sat there in that OR, literally biting my tongue, holding back tears, thinking, I can't believe this is over. And that that's not going to happen. And I mean, we know what happens now. Well, right? well, no. Well, well, that was no. that was not our daughter. Because <laughs> our gestational carrier miscarried that embryo <gasps> as well. Oh, I see. I don't yeah. know this part of the story too. Hold on. Yeah. So this is when I actually checked out of life and I went, I can't deal with people anymore. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. She miscarried this one too. And um, it took us, our plan was to never create more embryos again. Because the last time I had done the egg retrieval process, I it had contributed to one of my complications that I had during pregnancy, uh, which is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. It reached like a, a severe to critical level, which was very, very scary and very dangerous, which we knew we could avoid because I wasn't going to be pregnant. So at the very least, it would be mild to moderate and we would be able to monitor it. But it was just so scary and so hard on my body. Our plan was to never, ever, ever do another egg retrieval again. And after the way this all ended, uh, we gave ourselves a month 
to just grieve it all that not one of the embryos from our son's cohort survived and he was the only one what does that mean and what do we do now and all the dreams and all of that we just gave ourselves a month and then we had a really honest conversations with ourselves and we said look we don't want to do I, we don't want to put my body through this but can we live the rest of our lives feeling like we're feeling right now, which is the decision was made for us? And by this point, Adriana, we were exhausted. Like how many years of uncertainty and waiting and hoping and wishing, starting from when I started fertility treatment through the high-risk pregnancy, through the NICU, and then now this, which was totally unexpected, Right. And it's been an emotional roller coaster of mm. very intense exactly. uh, proportions, both of, of quantity and, and, you know, angle of it, like from one day to another, from yeah. instant, from highs and lows and switches. And yes, you are exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> of course you're exhausted. Um, and see, I was like, okay, so that one did it. And like, oh, <laughs> now I can't wait to hear the rest. But of course, we're going to take a break so that then I don't interrupt you again. We'll be right back. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? And the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started. And if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get-togethers through images. And let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple, even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since My Life in a Book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids, and then when you want to share them, it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to, and then also remembering that, say, Aunt Helen only does email, so you need to send her image separately. Or like in my case, where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, 
and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. And we are back talking with Parjat about her surrogate story. And oh my goodness. Okay, so super roller coaster. You gave yourselves that month, then what? And then we came to the decision that we were not okay with the way that that ended. It felt like it would ended on somebody else's terms, that we weren't choosing to walk away, that we were being forced to walk away. And I really just felt like we couldn't live with, I couldn't live with that. And when my husband kind of reflected on for himself, he, he felt like he couldn't live with that either. It just did not feel right. So we went back to the medical community and did two, no, three different second opinions or three opinions uh, with reproductive endocrinologists. How do we prepare my body to do another egg retrieval safely? And uh, we got some ideas for protocols that are kind of out of the box. Um, my body is very unusual in how it responds to medications in general. So we really did have to think creatively. My reproductive endocrinologist was really on board about thinking creatively and how to protect me and how to be really safe with my health. We told our friends, our closest friends about it, that this is happening. So we had several people checking in on us throughout the whole time, the whole process. And then we decided to go for it. We said, this is it. This is the final one. And we walked into it with a sense of power and control. Like we started talking about this whole episode, right? Is we don't know what's going to happen, but we are choosing to do this one last time. And this is our choice. And we were making very deliberate choices and taking deliberate action to give us back some of that control we felt we had completely lost. So we went through the whole process and this time we had my family looped into it. My parents knew about it because uh, somebody needed to watch the kid, the older kid, while I went to all these appointments all the time and, and all of that. So we had a lot of supporters around us and we did the uh, whole process. We did the egg retrieval, again, retrieved a lot of eggs. My body produces a lot of eggs. Uh, and after all the testing and everything was done, we were down to two chromosomally normal embryos. One was for your listeners who are fertility patients, they're going to know what I mean. One's a 4BB. So it was really, it was a good quality embryo. It was a day five, good quality embryo. The second one was an early blast. I mean, it didn't quite, wasn't quite growing as robustly, but it seemed fine. Chromosomally was normal. They gave it till day six and they said, all right, we, we have a shot. When the embryologist called me and told me that report, I said, so you're basically telling me we've got one because come on, a day six early blast, like that's not going to make it. And I remember her telling me I was sitting on the sofa. The sun was coming in from behind. Um, it was supposedly like it was a really nice summer day and I could just feel the clouds looming over me. And she said, no, sometimes embryos just do better in the environment they're meant to be in uh, rather than in a Petri dish. So I wouldn't count this one out. And in my head, I'm like, thanks, lady, but I don't believe you for one second. <laughs> and so in our heads, we went in thinking we've got one shot at this. And so our gestational carrier, who was such a trooper, got ready again. She's, she did her whole cycle. It was September by this point. And we decided uh, to go forward with it. We transferred the best, the better quality one, which was the 4BB. Uh, it was a really good quality embryo. It looked beautiful under the microscope. Everything looked fantastic. Um, everybody was really hopeful. Like the room was buzzing when we were in the OR for the transfer. And we just had a lot of hope returned. And during the two-week wait, which she usually went dark, she would not contact me until, she, until our clinic coordinator would call with her uh, HCG result, the blood draw. Um, because she was not supposed to tell us anything. But this time she broke the rule and she texted me and she didn't say anything about what was going on, but she just texted to say hi, which meant to me went, oh my gosh, did this work? Does she know something that we're about to find out? And so hopes were really high. Everybody was excited. And then we got the call. She had miscarried again. Mm. 
And in our head, that was our last shot. We had one more embryo in the freezer, but we had written it off. This was our last shot. And I will tell you, that was when I fell down a dark hole. I could not for the life of me understand what was happening. This was supposed to be our easy option, quote unquote easy, right? The fertility piece of it was taken care of by working with somebody who was healthy. We were supposedly working with healthy embryos. Why do we keep losing babies? I called our doctor and I said, we need to do something different. I reached out to another doctor I had become familiar with through my work. And I said, tell me, throw me anything. What else is there? I don't care if it's not covered under insurance. We have spent so much money as it is. Give me the options. I will choose what feels right to me. So we had a list of different tests that we could run. We could test my husband again, but with a deeper test to see if there's an issue with um, with the sperm that could be affecting embryo quality in a way that the biopsy can't test for. We were going to test her again. Is her uterus actually receptive in the window that we are transferring? We were going to test the mitochondrial DNA of the, the embryos. We didn't actually have to do the test that the data was actually collected, but they just didn't tell us what it was. So we were going to look back at that is there something else going wrong that we aren't aware of? So we looked, we did all the testing. We took several months to make that happen. She was such a trooper with us and was very patient, went through all kinds of testing. My husband did his testing. We reached out to the company that did the biopsies. We talked to all sorts of people. We met with my reproductive endocrinologist. What is going on? Nobody had answers. Everything came back negative. Everything came back completely fine. And so our final cycle in January of 2018, we went in and my husband and I had no hope, nothing. This was our lowest quality, slowest growing embryo. There was nothing different that we were doing that we could have done. We made slight tweaks to the protocol, but why would that make a difference in our heads? That's what we thought. This was it and it was over. And we had found a a sense of peace with that because this was our choice. We chose to go one more time regardless of the outcome. And we had talked about this over and over. What if they both miss, what if she miscarries both? What if they're both failed cycles? What if something happens? And we chose this path. And so we we had come into it with a place of peace. Yes, it would be devastating if she miscarried this one or if it was a failed cycle, but we were at peace. And that was the difference between that cycle and every other one. We went into the OR. It was actually a different OR than usual. This uh, this time, it was also a different bed and bay that she was in. We all kind of had this twinkle in our eye of, huh, how is everything completely different this time than, than every other cycle we have done? We've And we've been here a lot, but we didn't think anything of it. We were sitting there, we were chatting, we were talking, knowing that this was probably the last time we were going to see her. We go into a different OR than usual. It was a different team of people than usual. And my husband and I held our hands uh, as they, they transferred our actual very, very last embryo. And after it was over, we just hugged each other and we said, we're going to go on a trip. That's how we're going to spend the weekend when we're supposed to get the results. We're going to go on a trip the three of us, and we're going to enjoy our life with the three of us because that's what it is. We had scheduled uh, open house showings with our realtor to look for houses for the three of us. We had started talking about making financial changes now that we were done spending money on our fertility. So we had a meeting scheduled with our financial advisor at some point to move some money around because now we were done. Fertility treatment was over. The door had actually closed. And we were ready to move on. Nine days later, I got a call from the clinic coordinator. 
And she said, started the conversation exactly the way she always started. Parijat, do you have a minute? Yes, I do. And I knew it was a negative. I knew she was going to tell me the same thing she had always told me. I'm so sorry. Whatever. That's how it's going to be. And I stood outside the door of my house. And she said, congratulations, she's pregnant. Did you like fall to your knees and cry also? I did. Yeah. Well, later. Actually, at first, at first I was completely in shock. So I said, excuse me, say that again. And she said, she gave me her numbers and she, and it was the highest number I've ever heard in my life for. It was a fantastic number. And, and I still, I still didn't say anything for like 30 seconds. She's like, are you still there? And I said, can you check the chart again? Do you know who you're talking to? (laughs) And she's like, oh my God, you're scaring me. Hold on. Let me check. She double checked, triple checked. She said, "No, this is you. You are expecting a baby. This this is your first uh, blood draw, and it's a really good number. And we'll see how it goes in two days." And the number just kept rising and rising. And then we saw the heartbeat, and this baby was here to stay. Our very last, lowest quality, slowest growing embryo that we had written off <laughs> became our daughter that we brought home. Yeah. Oh, goodness. And that's actually, I mean, it's, it's the end of the start, right? Because now, yeah, now right. you're beginning with the pregnancy. Um, right. And I think I want to f- focus on your experiences of that pregnancy and birth and postpartum um with a baby that was not a preemie yeah like how did you go through this moving forward and when hitting those milestones of you know that that 23 weeks 24 weeks when your son had been born and this baby's still in the surrogate's belly it was such a trip I mean, I'll be honest, it was hard to bond with the baby during the pregnancy and really kind of like we knew the baby was there, but we didn't feel it. And so we'd go and visit our gestational carrier. We'd go to appointments, we'd go to ultrasounds and it would feel real for like those three hours or whatever we were there with her. And then you could feel it as we drove back home, slowly it would wane. And then we'd get back to our normal life. And our normal life at that time was crazy because all those financial plans we had made, we had to undo all the open houses we had to see. We had to cancel because they are no longer appropriate for a family of four. Um, and then I was writing my book at the time and we were selling our house at the time. It was just a really crazy time. And so it was, we just kind of got caught up in our life and it was really hard to remember that there was huge changes happening. And I think that's a very different experience when you don't have physical changes happening that nothing actually in our life changed until the minute she came home. There was no evidence of this baby. So it was hard to bond with her. And, and while yes, hitting 24 weeks and six days was a big milestone for us. Cause that was the longest any of our babies had gestated really. Um, it still wasn't quite as reassuring as I think it might be for other people, because we know what a baby goes through when they're born so early So my eye was really set on 34, 35 weeks uh, because while there could still be some NICU time at that point, that's so close to term that if there's nothing else going wrong, we're likely bringing home a full-term baby. And so I remember there was a day that when she hit 35 weeks that I texted her and I went, I can't believe we've made it. And it was that moment that it really hit me um, a lot of grief about everything we'd been through, the losses and everything just kind of started pouring out because I just felt like we're almost there. Like we actually are almost finally here. And, um, but it was such a trip. Like there were moments of these, of these uh, realizations, but for the most part, it was just such a different world than where we, where we were and what we were going through that it wasn't really quite connected 
until the last like week or so of the pregnancy when she started texting me every day with different changes, things were happening, um, different sensations she was noticing. And she finally called us at uh, four o'clock in the morning, the day that my daughter was born, saying, uh, my water broke. I think you guys should come now. <laughs> uh-huh. And so we we ran, uh, we got everything together. We had our hospital bags ready, which we had never, like we didn't have hospital bags last time. So like all these new things, new experiences. Um, but uh, one thing we realized is that while yes, I wasn't carrying her, there was something in common with our two babies, which is they like to come very fast. Uh, my son was born in 12 minutes. <laughs> this girl was born in less than four. Whoa, so- from water breaking? <laughs> yeah. But was she even in the hospital? <laughs> she had ju- I think she had just made it to L&D and within like 20 minutes she was delivered. Like they were scrambling. <laughs> Hold on. But how is like was she already in the hospital before her water break? Was she having her like No. Attack? No, she was at home and her plan was she wanted to labor at home cuz her she had two other babies. Uh-huh. And uh, those labors were longer, 10, 12 hours. And so she would labor, labor, labor at home until it got really close. And then she would go to the hospital. And then within an hour or two, maybe three hours is when she delivered. That's what we were expecting. That is not what happened. (laughs) Her contractions just picked up really quickly. She was at home, at home, at home. And then she got to the hospital um, I want to say about an hour before and they have this assessment room that they take her to and they're like, okay, things are okay. I think we've got some time. Um, and then they moved her slowly up to, uh, to labor and delivery. They got her settled in. And as soon as the team walked in, they went, oh my gosh, this is happening right now. <laughs> and we were driving. And so we missed the birth by 15 minutes after all of that, we had just barely made it and her husband was did a fantastic job of managing both sides of this because we heard the story later that she was screaming at him to get us to come faster and she was screaming at the OB to stall labor because she didn't want to deliver without us there and we keep texting him from the car going we're coming we're coming and so he flat out just lied to both of us and he told her we're here we're walking in right now it's okay they'll be here and he told us don't worry she's not going to deliver for a while we're like okay great we're going to make it and then we all walked in and it was the best thing he could have done right he did what he needed to do <laughs> absolutely like, yeah oh uh, crazy so we walked in yeah she had just been um just been uh, cleaned off, not totally cleaned off as we had. Uh, she was just such a wonderful job of ex- sharing our wishes, even though we weren't there. So they um, didn't completely clean her off, but just enough to get a diaper on her and wrapped her up. And just when they'd finished that, we had walked in and she was just lying there. And it was so surreal. That's our baby. That's ours. She's ours. What? We get to take her home. It took so long to get used to that. And then we were like, oh my gosh, she's like humongous. She's such a huge person. And how much does she weigh, right? Because she weighed seven pounds, 12 ounces. And how big was your son when he was born? He was one pound, five ounces. Yeah. Big difference. Huge difference. (laughs) It was just incredible. It was such a whirlwind. And before you knew it, I mean, it wasn't even just just over 24 hours. We were all at the hospital together. And then she got discharged. A couple hours later, we got discharged. And then she came home with us. Ugh. We were like, could talk for hours, right? I know. Like, just getting started. <laughs> but what were your feelings after going all through this and like how did this let's talk about let's switch to your identity change with all the things of this experience and having come to that realization and then confirmation of what your body could do um and what was safest for you and then this super intense experience of 
going through all these embryos and losing hope and having the surprise and miracle of the slowest growing baby embryo <laughs> being the one, right? Your your little um yeah, the little embryo that could. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> um and then getting home, you healthy, baby healthy, full t- term baby that came together in the most unexpected of ways and journey. <laughs> What, what, what did that do to Parajat? <laughs> oh man, what did it not do? I felt like <laughs> I was in a boxing match. Oh man, it was it was intense. Um, there were so many moments during the pregnancy when I would just like I'd be in the shower or I'd be running or something, thinking this time is going to be so different because we're going to be caring for a baby and I'm going to be feeling okay and I'm going to be healthy and baby's going to be healthy. And there was such a sense of relief. And then to bring her home and to really the only complaint that we had was we were exhausted because here's the other difference we didn't realize is full-term babies don't come home with a schedule like NICU babies do. (laughs) We're like, why is she always awake? (laughs) Um, But it was such a trip. It had been so long since we'd had a newborn at home and it had been such, it was such a different experience. So we felt like first time parents again, and we allowed ourselves to feel that way. We allowed for our pediatrician to talk to us like we had no idea what we were doing because we didn't, we didn't remember it. And there were so many aspects of her first few days and weeks that were completely different than our son's first few days and weeks at home. And so we allowed ourselves to just kind of ride that wave. And for me, it was So much of it was learning how to reshape my identity as a mother, that I don't have to deliver the child. The baby doesn't have to come from my body for me to be a mother. And that took quite some time for me to really, truly believe with all my heart. Mm. Yeah. And there there was a moment, I think, when it really clicked is when she started recognizing us. And she started recognizing us. So she was a slow-growing embryo, but as a baby, she's actually developing very quickly. <laughs> so she's hitting all her milestones very early. And so she recognized us quite early. When she smiled at us, she smiled very early. And I think it was those moments when I go, oh, you see me as the mom. I need to see me as the mom, too, because we got this. Mm. How lovely of that reflection Mm. from her. Yeah. (laughs) That gave you that closure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Well, is in these last few minutes, as we have, I don't want to, but we have to wrap up. (laughs) Is there anything that you want to make sure we talk about? I mean, I think it's just that There's no easy path, right? And I wish I wish we had gone into that knowing that. I, th- I think in some ways that ignorance and that naivete helped us to take the risks at the beginning, but it made it very challenging to deal with the hardships that came on this path to bringing her home. And so I think just to acknowledge there are no easy paths. And if it feels hard, it's not because it's you or you are not able to deal with it, or whatever it is that you're telling yourself, it really is, this journey is really challenging. It's really hard. And surrounding yourself with people who can care for you and show you compassion and love when you're not able to do that for yourself, I think is beyond key for helping you get through whatever it is that's lying ahead that we just can't predict. Mm, So true. So true. And it goes back, I mean... I always say this very much relating to birth, right? And saying like how birth has to have this monumental, intense representation. You need a physical representation of the intense change that's happening to you and your identity when you become a parent. And yeah, you might have not been carrying her, but you still had this intense, super intense, you know, expression and, and physical too. 
yeah, not just mental, mental and physical, to become her parent. Yeah. Like what you, yeah, there's no easy path. There's no way out. It has, you need to go through that intensity because it, it's kind of like telling you, hey, this is how big this is all. It, it yeah. Is. Yeah. The, yeah. This is how big the change is. This is how big the shift is. So we're preparing you for it this way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely agreed. Um, Pardet, if people want to connect with you, get a hold of your book, ask you questions, you know, anything, how can they do that? Yeah, they can uh, go to my website, farijatdeshpande.com. From there on the menu, you can see a link to my book, which is pregnancybrainbook.com. There is um, other resources. My podcast is on there. You can also send me a message through my contact form as well. Yes. And you have a beautiful, fantastic podcast called Delivering Miracles. Thank um, you. And what can you spell your name for your... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> for your website? <laughs> Absolutely. It's P-A-R-I-J-A-T-D-E-S-H-P-A-N-D-E.com. Wonderful. And I recommend you get the book and listen to the podcast. And you are just a wealth of beautiful information and storytelling all woven together. Not just when you tell your story, but when you, anything you talk about, you're so passionate. And I really love all you do and having you here on the show today. Thank you so much. The respect and love is absolutely mutual. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vivace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is copyright 2019 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.